Okay, this will be my second podcast. Um, I've chosen to talk about suicide prevention um, because of the increase that we have seen. And, and uh, with the, the recent news of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain committing suicide, um, it's, it's really been the talk of the town lately. And this has been something that I've had some ideas on for a long time. Um, I don't think they're popular ideas. Um, I, I don't. I, I. I. Again, it's outside the box. It's something that that I think we need to look at and maybe talk about a little bit. Uh, have have a discussion on. Um, the CDC has said that since 1999, suicide has increased about 25 percent. That is a huge number. And I don't think it's so much about that there's something special about 1999 or the new century or anything like that. I think that we live in a more stressful time. Um, I think uh, anxiety is on the rise. Um, I think as a society, we have become less tolerant of other people. And, and in a lot of ways, we become bullies to other people. And I know that sounds uh, outrageous to talk about, but if, if, if you like, um, post something on Facebook on a, uh, a site, uh, page where there's a lot of people that comment, um, you'll probably find somebody that's going to bully you. You probably find somebody that will say something and, and, you know, businesses, uh, will take advantage of you and, um, um, kind of, uh, there's nothing you could do. Like, uh, uh, some place will charge you, charge your credit card that you didn't want to. And it, it takes forever to get that back if you can't even get it back. And a lot of times we just give up and we give in and society has become a very stressful place for a lot of people. And I think that there are people that are maybe more vulnerable than others. And we'll definitely talk about that. Um, but, uh, it's one of the 10 leading causes of death for every age group. It's the number one cause of death for adolescents and young adults. And so I want to talk about that as well. Um, as for me, um, I'm a former therapist and a caseworker. I've worked with suicide, uh, suicidal individuals a lot. Um, I'm a life coach and a researcher. Um, I, I have uh, a bipolar disorder and PTSD, and with that comes uh, suicidal thoughts. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit where suicidal thoughts themselves come from, because a lot of people say, uh, maybe that I would, I would just like to go to sleep and never wake up, or I wish I was never born, or, um, uh, I, I would just rather not be alive. And that's a little bit different than thoughts of actually doing harm and taking your life. And so, uh, we, we have to kind of separate those a little bit because everybody has kind of had those thoughts of, you know, this is, a, this is a, t a stressful situation I'm going through. I would rather not be alive for it, maybe. Um, but not everybody has the thoughts of, hey, I'm going to go get a gun or I'm going to go get some pills and I'm going to end my life. Not everybody has those. So I want to talk about those specifically. I believe that um, our belief system, what we hold dear, what we've learned over the years, that we, that the things that we actually believe, our core beliefs, those create thoughts uh, from, um, from 
events that take place. So, for instance, let me give an example. Uh, when, I, when I used to be a school principal, we took the kids to a park one day, and uh, my son, who was in kindergarten, was there at the park with uh, a friend of his that was also in kindergarten, and they were sitting there on a, on a, uh, next to the picnic table I was sitting on. And uh, a family showed up at the park, car door up, opened up, and a dog got out of the car and started running towards the park. Um, just uh, running just towards the park, not towards us, just towards the park. I mean, we were in the park. My son sees this, and he gets all excited, and he's like, come here, doggy, you know, I want to pet you. And my, my son's happy, smiling on his face. My son's friend, though, started climbing higher on top of the picnic table, trying to get onto the jungle gym or whatever was next to us, and he has terror all over his face. Now, those boys shared the same event, the same experience, but their belief systems about dogs were different and it caused different thoughts. Now those thoughts then, um, the fight or flight response or, or, or whatever, would release neurotransmitters which create emotions um, and they either verify and enforce the thoughts or they diff diffuse those thoughts. And so even though uh, that dog had no evil intentions, one person believed that they did and one didn't. Now, if my son had been wrong and that dog did have evil intentions, the other boy would have been right in his assumptions. Uh, mental illness is a chemical imbalance. And I'm not saying that everybody that has suicidal thoughts has a chemical imbalance or has a mental illness, but it is very common. Um, so the same thoughts or experiences that you might have uh, may release different neurotransmitters for someone that has a mental illness. Um, some uh, neurotransmitters cause paranoia or fear or other things, and, and um, the adrenaline is the anxiety or the fear um, is one of those things that incite somebody to um, take actions that are uh, negative, uh, that, that fit their belief um, of maybe not wanting to live. So um, mental illness may affect your belief system as well other than your belief system affecting you know the release of the neurotransmitters the mental illness also may affect your belief system if you have PTSD for instance uh, because you have an unexpected trauma in your life it shakes your belief system it, it makes you feel unsafe in a lot of situations and when someone feels unsafe for too long they may search for an escape an escape route uh, that's why mentally many mental illness um, individuals have comorbid drug and alcohol abuse. That's their escape. Um, most suicidal individuals express feelings of being trapped. Trapped in a room, trapped in a car, trapped in traffic, trapped in a dead-end life, trapped in anxiety, trapped in their body. Um, I know that I felt trapped going into like uh, um, a, a restroom with no windows and just the one door. You know, there's just, there's no escape route. And so, um, you know, at times I might feel panic in a situation that I, I really shouldn't uh, feel panic. I don't have to feel panic, but I do. So if escape routes are not available, you might get a panic attack. You might have suicidal thoughts because that is another escape. It might be your uh, go-to escape. Uh, when anxiety, stress, paranoia, depression, 
uh, when they linger, the mind starts wanting an escape. So the longer you're in a stressful situation, the more you're wanting that escape. I, um, I'll give an example, and I'll use myself as, as an example. I can stand in line for something for a reasonable amount of time, but once that time has expired and it starts to be kind of an unreasonable length of time, I start to feel more and more anxiety. And there have been times where I've ordered something at a counter, and because it's taken so long, I might have already have paid for it. My desire is to just walk away. I, I've decided that, um, that uh, instead of this anxiety, I I would just go away without my burger or whatever. Um, it's irrational, I know, but that's sometimes how the mind works. So um, you can sympathize, you can empathize with these thoughts. You may feel you've had the same experience that others describe, and maybe yours wasn't so bad. You might assume that somebody is attention-seeking. It could be. Um, sometimes that happens. Um, but hopefully someone with suicidal thoughts are seeking attention. Um, that means that they want help if they're seeking attention. In my experience, reaching out for help is an early stage of suicidal ideation. With help, they can learn to cope. When they reach out for help and no one helps, or shames the individual, which is very common these days, it enforces their belief that they aren't worth saving and no one needs them. It's, it's when an individual quits reaching out that they are really in danger. So I'm going to take a, take a break here and uh, record more in just a minute. Okay, we are back. Uh, so you might be thinking, what do we need to do? Um, you know, I kind of understand what you're saying about where it comes from, who gets it, um, why we need to do something about it. Um, but I want to, uh, th this is where it gets kind of interesting. This is where I think that we need to change some things. Um, I believe that there are two things that we need to do to help, re, uh, um, to help lower um, suicide rates. Um, the first part of suicide prevention is bringing secrets into the open. If you can get the suicide individual to talk about their feelings of hopelessness, what issues are driving those thoughts, you might be able to help them get through those symptoms. And uh, it might seem like an easy thing, and you might feel like you are um, open enough of an individual where somebody can come to you and share those type of thoughts. And you might be right. But for most people, when you share with them that you are suicidal, their reaction is one which makes you um, wish that you hadn't opened up to them. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. The second key to suicide prevention is buying time for that individual. And this is what most suicide prevention is based on. When I took suicide prevention training, um, you know, you're talking to an individual that's suicidal, you're trying to buy them time. You're trying to get them to commit to a time in the future, to come back and visit you again, um, to maybe hold off on their suicidal thoughts until 
uh, such such a time in the future in an effort of helping them to get through this time of crisis to a point where they feel safety and can get some help. The only problem with that is it's short term. Um, suicidal thoughts is an up and down kind of thing. When you're down, you have the thoughts. Later on, you're going to feel better and you're not going to feel suicidal. And it's, 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 we try to get somebody to that point. But it doesn't really solve the problem because they're going to go down again. And so at, at some point, somebody feels like, you know, I don't, I don't want this roller coaster anymore. I don't want to keep having to be bailed out of my suicidal thoughts. And that's when they might determine that they're going to go through with it. Uh, I had a professor one time that asked a question that if your child came to you and said, hey, you know what, I've got this friend that has been experimenting with marijuana and is is really having a hard time, um, they feel like they might be becoming addicted to it and they could really use some help, um, but they're, they, don't, they don't want anybody to know. And if your response is, which is probably what my response was, I don't want you hanging out with that kid anymore. Um, that kid's bad news, and you're just better off not dealing with that kid anymore. Well, what if your child was asking you that, and this is what my professor said, in reference to themselves. They were kind of feeling you out to see how you would react uh, to finding out that they were the ones that were experimenting with drugs. Um, and you just came off as judgmental about it. So um, that let me know that I wasn't as open and as accepting, um, willing to work with a person as I thought that I was. And of course, if I knew it was my child, if they came in and said that, I, I would have reacted differently. But, but if my child is mind mapping, trying to figure out how I feel about something, and they ask a question in that way, and I react that way, they're not going to open up. So we want to... Um, we want to be the people that somebody that's suicidal can come to and talk about those things because we need to get those secrets out into the open. If, we, if, if, if they share with us something about maybe bullying or a heartache or something like that that we can help them with, then we can take away that motivation that they have for ending their life. So we as a society, we handle suicidal individuals all wrong. Uh, let me ask you, do you recognize comments such as this? Quit talking like that. Don't you realize how that makes me feel? You're just being selfish. Are you really wanting to hurt the ones you love? Or the ones that love you? Or this one. Oh, you just need to think positive thoughts and quit wallowing. Or the this, this simple, hey, things are going to get better. Or, or, or my personal favorite. If you kill yourself, you'll go to hell. Um, we've probably all heard something like that. We may not have had it said to us, um, but, but we know that people do talk that way. They talk about being a selfish thing. When I worked as a mental health caseworker, we had a responsibility to be sure any client who expressed suicidal thoughts, and we asked every time that we saw them in our office, that they were safe before they left our office. We had to feel that they weren't in imminent danger. Uh, this took time and effort, which our supervisors stated that we needed to offer, but there was always that push for billable hours. So if you spent too much time reassuring a client's safety, your numbers would be low and you'd be threatened with being replaced. 
So there was a, an unspoken pressure um, not to spend too much time on these things, which are huge issues. Um, I've worked with dozens and dozens, uh, maybe even hundreds of suicidal clients. Most often I could get them to agree to a safety plan, make a future appointment, which is beneficial in buying them time, and send them safely, at least for that time being, on their way home until the next time. I always took it seriously. There were two instances where I was not confident that they were safe, and I was not willing to let them leave my office while they were in that state. Um, in cases like that, we were supposed to secretly signal the front desk to call 911, have the police come, handcuff the client, take them to the mental hospital for evaluation where they would be stripped of everything but a hospital gown, locked in a ward, to wait for the psychiatrist to evaluate and then allow them to leave when they're better. Uh, the patient could leave after 24 hours as an adult, but they never tell them they have options. If they know they have options, they stall. Uh, like, um, well, let's talk to the doctor first. He'll be here tomorrow at 8 a.m. Um, and they try to persuade them to stay. For the two clients that I had, um, I, I wasn't willing to have them handcuffed. Um, so I convinced them to let me take them to the hospital for a voluntary evaluation. And I, th I think that right off the bat, you know, if we've got somebody that's feeling trapped um, and we uh, strip away their dignity and handcuff them where they feel even more trapped and then lock them on a ward where they feel more trapped, we take away their things, um, I, I think we're, we're doing it backwards. Um, how would handcuffing make you feel if you were feeling trapped already or being locked up to 24 hours with no outside contact, none of your possessions? Um, suicidal people learn to say the things that they need to say in order to get out. They'll tell the psychiatrist anything. Uh, they'll tell them they're feeling fine when they're not, just so that they can get out. Uh, if you get locked up too many times or you get ordered by court to stay, you could lose some rights, your Second Amendment rights for one. Uh, you could be ordered to take meds or stay locked up. Talk about feeling trapped. So guess what people learn to do? They, they don't reach out. They don't say they're hurting. Uh, they try to find another way to cope and that ends up being drugs, alcohol, cutting, suicide attempts. Um, it's uh, even even some of the things that society pushes on us today like the suicide hotlines I'm not saying that suicide hotlines are not helpful I've, because I think people need to talk and they need to feel non-judgment but if you express on a suicide hotline that, that you are going to kill yourself that day or at that time they will trace your call and send somebody to check up on you. And so when somebody that's suicidal learns something like that, they won't reach out. Now, um, first responders, uh, therapists, doctors, uh, police officers, teachers, those type of people, counselors, they have to report those things. Um, and so people learn. I've had clients ask me all the time, how much can I tell you? Um, without you calling the police to come get me. And so they'll not reach out. They'll not open up. Have you seen the commercials for 
the drug treatment resorts? They're on the beach. They're on a horse ranch. They have swimming pools and golf courses and uh, food prepared by chefs. The suicidal people get hospital food. They sit in a bare room reading a book. Uh, they get their pills fed to them from a Dixie cup every couple hours, uh, uh, which makes them feel groggy and sluggish. Why would someone seek treatment? And the pills, uh, the antidepressants, they warn of possible side effects like, guess what, suicidal thoughts. They make you drowsy. You can't even think. Um, you take away the alcohol and then give them a drug that does pretty much the same thing, but it's it's in a dosage that um, equates, you know, they're not overdoing it like they might with alcohol. So you give them a certain percentage, enough just to maybe allow them to function a little bit, but not allow them to function enough to kill themselves. Uh, it steals your ability to function, those drugs. Um, the whole time they're thinking, the, 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 the psychiatrists, the counselors, the doctors, well, at least they're not suicidal. Well, that's debatable. Um, there may be not be an imminent danger, but you didn't solve anything. You didn't take care of the problem that caused them in the first place. Now, if you're an alcoholic, um, most alcoholics, we are taught, um, have comorbid issues. Uh, they, they usually have something that, that triggers them to drink. They have some emotional stressors that trigger them to drink, and most alcoholics will tell you what drives them to drink. Now, not all alcoholics are like that. Some are just addicted to the alcohol. Maybe their issues are taken care of, but they still have the alcoholism. But what they've learned to do in treatment is try to deal at, with the alcoholism at the same time as they deal with the emotional issues. So that whatever was, uh, if, if you if you get somebody to quit drinking, like they white knuckle it and they use their willpower, the best of their knowledge or best of their ability to not drink anymore, um, you, you might have still left the emotional issues that might trigger them to relapse. So they try to deal with both things at the same time. Well, we also need to do that with people that are suicidal. Uh, whatever has caused them, um, and, and not to say that there's, there's always an issue, because I know that I have felt suicidal at times, where there really was no good reason for me to feel suicidal. It's just the thoughts that were in my head, the emotions that I was having. It was a chemical imbalance in my brain that was not brought on by anything concrete. Um, but we need to deal with those things that would push somebody in that direction. So instead of fighting, arguing, trying to reconcile, uh, trying to reconcile might bring some peace. They're, they're, it might take care of some of those things that push somebody to the edge. Uh, if it's a health issue that somebody's dealing with, maybe they could get some medical help. Um, they might think, you know, well, there isn't any medical help or I can't afford the medical help. Well, if we know about it, we might be able to find them that or they might be able to see a counselor to help them deal with those health issues. I think in the case of Robin Williams, for instance, he had some um, De I, I, from what I heard, there was some dementia coming on and he didn't want to have to deal with that down the road. So he thought it would be easier to take his life. Well, maybe if he had seen a counselor and the counselor told him, you know, hey, 
Um, you've got at least five years where we can deal with this dementia where it's not really going to affect you. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's hold off and let's see what we can do to make life better for you. And maybe, maybe, you know, all, maybe in the next two years, they'll come up with a cure or something like that. Um, financial stresses. Um, that's a very common thing for, for people to get suicidal over is financial stresses. Well, maybe if people knew about it, they might be able to help out with those things. Legal concerns. Those are another issue. Uh, the individual might need medications to alleviate the stress. They might have uh, a medical issue where they could take medications and not have those thoughts. Um, we need to look into those things. We need to try to find a solution to the problem instead of accusing the person or shaming the person and hoping that they just never bring it up. I've heard that a lot, you know, just quit talking about it. Well, no, the person needs to talk about it. So without caring concern, we may never get to hear the reason that someone is suffering. And we can't then get those secrets out into the open if we're not listening. We can't buy them time. We need to know those things in order to do that. So I'm going to take another break here. And um, then I'm going to uh, talk in a little bit more detail about what I think we should do. Okay, so now let's take a look at what happens currently to those who feel suicidal and can't get the help they need because of the way that we currently handle those situations. Think of the cases of suicides that you've heard of. Celebrities, friends, family members... Um, my grandfather shot himself in the head. Um, he lost the love of his life, my grandmother, to breast cancer, and a year later he felt that he couldn't handle it anymore. I don't know if he tried to get help. I certainly wish things had been different for him, but apparently he felt this was his solution. So someone found him with a hole in his head, and I don't know how gruesome or messy it was, but you get the picture. Um, not a not a good situation. Robin Williams, personal hero of mine, he had some health issues he wasn't willing to face. He had a career that had some setbacks. Um, I think, personally think, that he might have been bipolar um, because he was seemed to be manic a lot. And um, um, what he did was he hung himself, and of course his body was found, and, and, and these are gruesome things. Uh, some people take um, pills, they jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, they uh, crash their car into something, and, and they're, uh, the people that find them, the loved ones, they have to pick up the pieces of a gruesome, surprising death. And I... I just feel like something needs to be done to prevent these type of gruesome things. Um, I had a, a client one time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call her Sandy. That wasn't her name. Um, she had lost her husband to a heart attack while they were separated, and the guilt was just overwhelming to her. So she would come into my office and talk about wanting to go see her husband, who was dead, um, she was wanting to kill herself so that she could be with him. And so we would work out a safety plan after safety plan, and she would get better each time. She, she was learning how to cope with those thoughts. Um, she got a full-time job, 
and she thought she was feeling pretty good. Um, she moved away. Um, she wasn't my client anymore. She she went to live with a man in another, not another state, but along. Uh, it was it was in Texas, but it was far enough that it probably would have crossed three states if it was a normal sized state. Somebody she met online. Um, but he had some issues too. And a year later, they made a suicide pact and they took pills together uh, in an attempt to end it all. Well, they were both found in time and rushed to the hospital. But um, uh, she had some serious health issues that came from that attempt. Um, and it took her a while to recover from that. And, uh, but she was lucky. And she survived. And today, she, she's back in the area here. She lives with her family. She's coping well. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a happy ending. It's not always that way. Suicides are often gruesome. Uh, the, and it's usually a family member that finds the lifeless body. And it's a shock. And there's feelings of guilt. They don't know what happened. They, they weren't aware of the issues. Um... We all know that that's what we really want to end. That is the shocking part of suicide because we lose people all the time. But we always feel like suicide is just such a waste. It's such a, um, a meaningless loss of life. And it's, it's because I think we don't really deal with it in the, the proper way. And so I'm going to offend some of your core beliefs right now because I am going to suggest that we don't use shame, we bring these issues to light, we don't lock up and we don't drug people. Um, uh, I mean, we, we want to give people medication if they need it, but we don't drug them to keep them from committing suicide, and we want to treat them with respect. So my idea is to legalize it. I said it. I want to legalize suicide. Um, uh, and let me, uh, there, there's all kinds of caveats I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give. Um, but first off, I want to say for adults, um, I think that younger people, teenagers, um, go through a lot of emotional issues and they might feel a lot of things and they might not be in the right state of mind to make a permanent decision like that. And, but I think if we tell them that, hey, I know, I know, I know what you're going through. I want to help you with that. Um, if if it's something that you really want to do, you really want to commit suicide and end your life, um, you can't do it right now. But um, when you turn 21 or whatever age, you know, we decide or they decide or the government figures out, um, you'll have that option. So. In the meantime, let's see what we can do to help you through these issues. And when you turn 21, if you still feel like doing that, that's your choice. I think that would help somebody um, to be able to cope and work through some issues because they have that respect and that way out. Um, so, so I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to go into a little more detail. So um, let's say, uh, let's use uh, Robin Williams' example here. Um, instead of keeping his health issues and maybe his emotional issues with his career private, he comes out and he just tells people. Um, 
this is what he's dealing with. And I'm not saying he has to tell the whole world because he's a public figure or anything, but he tells his family, he tells his doctor, he tells people that can help him that he's dealing with some depression. Um, he's got this health issue that he's having to deal with. So he checks into an assisted suicide clinic. Now, I'm going to go back to the uh, addiction places with the palm trees and the swimming pools and the room service and a beautiful suite and, and people to help you. That's, that's my idea of making somebody feel respected and, and instead of locking them up and, and taking away everything from them. Um, so you get them to agree to a, a three-month, six-month evaluation that culminates with their choice whether or not to continue with the suicide and take their own life with dignity, surrounded by loved ones, with no pain, no gore, on their own terms, and on their, in their own timing. They agree to go through three months or six months or whatever the time frame is, um, and I'm not, I haven't looked into what would work, or what would all be needed. I think it would be something we'd have to try out and see. But they, they agree to go through a time frame of psychological assessments, counseling, um, medical exams, working with caseworkers to prepare him and his family for end-of-life decisions to make sure that this is what he wants and maybe some help with dealing with dementia or whatever the situation is and see if that's something he can face. You see, suffering in silence is what pushes people over the edge and into the impulsive decisions they make. Now, granted, my proposal allows for grown adults to choose to end their own life. Um, my mother chose to end her dialysis when it wasn't working well any longer. Um, she decided it was time to let go, and she requested that the family spend her final week with her, saying their goodbyes and sharing memories and love. And it was beautiful. It really helped me and my family handle the loss much better than had she taken her life unexpectedly or lost a battle while suffering daily. Um, that's how I picture someone's end of life being, even if it is assisted suicide. So back to Robin Williams. He checks in. He's greeted by the staff. He's introduced to the counselors, the doctors, the caseworkers, the support staff. He's shown his room. He makes it. Uh, he makes himself at home, um, and he sits in his recliner and watches a Jumanji marathon, or you know whatever. Um, and then the work begins. You know he's in a he's in a comfortable place. He doesn't feel trapped. He's allowed to leave if he wants to. He opens up about his emotional suffering. He talks about his physical suffering with the doctor. He's not ashamed. He's not, nobody is shaming him. Nobody is pressuring him to change his mind, and that's key. His desire is respected. They even give him a caseworker to help him plan his funeral, to plan his final days, uh, to plan meetings with his family if he wants to say his goodbyes or to make things right with somebody. Um, those things are scheduled, and those things are, are, are put in with his meeting with a counselor, meeting with a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. Um, he gets holistic therapy. He gets massages. He gets nutrition and exercise because he needs a clear head to make such an important decision. He meets with a counselor that helps him identify any options he might have. 
He discusses how he sees any future he might have and how realistic his expectations are. He meets with family members to work out any concerns they might have in letting him go. Maybe reconciling a strained relationship. Okay, that was an unintended interruption, and we're back. Um, So going back to Robin Williams, he's checked himself into this place for 30, 60, 90 days, whatever, and he's met with his caseworkers, he met with his doctors, he met with psychiatrists, counselors, all that kind of stuff. Um, He works with his caseworkers, talks to his family members. Um, They get counseling to help them deal with his end of life. He gets counseling, uh, make sure that's what he really wants to do. Uh, Medical doctor meets with him, uh, talk about alleviating any symptoms that he might have, helps him cope with the disease, giving him an honest prognosis of what to expect if he chooses to live with it. Every aspect of these 60 days are meant to honor his wishes, but also put him in a healthier mindset and a healthier body. It could be that at the end of that time, he decides to postpone taking his life, or he might abandon the thought altogether. Um, Although it's healthier, in my opinion, to allow him to hold on to that option and postpone. Uh, Hopefully he has bonded with his family more during this time. Uh, Hopefully he's realized that his health issue is manageable with the right help. He might see his career as full and fulfilling, even without having to be so busy or receive top billing. Sure, a happy ending sounds good, I know. But most of you are thinking, yes, but what if he still decides to end his life? It's tragic, I agree. But in that case, he was going to anyway, right? I mean, he did. He was found hanging in his room. He may have suffered. Whoever found him may live with nightmares. He died alone, feeling alone. If someone's going to commit suicide, you can't stop them. Wouldn't it be better to respect their wishes, go through a preparation process, enjoy their last days, and say goodbye without pain and suffering? At least this process instills some hope. It doesn't trap someone who suffers with feeling trapped. It doesn't shame someone who struggles with shame. It doesn't cause our loved ones to withdraw emotionally from us and then surprise us with a gruesome death. For me, I would love that six months or three months. When my moods are messed up, it would be nice to be able to talk about them freely. It would be nice for people to respect those thoughts and not try to make me feel guilty for having them. And I know for sure that having an escape plan, whether or not I use it, is nice. I don't feel trapped as long as I have an option. I would also rather die with dignity, without pain, and be able to donate my organs to those that want to live than to waste those organs, uh, have them be found useless in the woods after being dead for days. Uh, I appreciate your thoughtfulness and for listening. I would love some feedback. You can email me at gary.legacylife at gmail.com and you can give me some polite feedback. Let me know what you think about the idea, if you have any tweaks in that idea. If you think it's a crazy idea from a crazy person, you're probably right. Um, But I'd like to hear your feedback. You might have had a bad experience. Your history may have caused you to be passionate about this issue. I respect that. Maybe you have an idea that would... Um, be different entirely from this. Let me know. I'd love to hear it. Uh, email me uh, or send me an, an audio message on the podcast app. But 
as always, thanks for listening. I know there's not very many of you, but um, I appreciate it.